Dr. Ben is on the other coast. He's on the West Coast. So how have you been? How being an intern tiring? <laughs> it's been pretty good so far. It's really busy, as you may expect with COVID and everything like that. But things are starting to settle down. And I'm really glad to be able to have some time to come talk with you guys today. I'm glad. Thank you so much. Yeah. Someone said the West Coast, best coast. I'd like to <laughs> disagree with that. <laughs> I asked Dr. Ben to come in here tonight because it is med school application season soon and I know so many people have questions about the whole process and just the whole journey pre-med journey and medical school journey and residency journey and there's no other person to hear but from someone who just finished the whole process Dr. Ben if you could please introduce yourself to us thank you very much for having me so my name is Ben Tran I'm a current intern going into dermatology I recently graduated from University of Virginia which is actually the east coast in 2020 so my kind of journey, I went to undergrad at the same institution, decided to go to medicine, uh, took a gap year, and was really glad to take that gap year. They went to medical school, and then here I am. On the side, I'm also the CEO and co-founder of ShadowDoc, which is a e-learning platform in which we try to really show students what it's like to be a medical professional before they go into the field. Because I feel like a lot of students don't really know what it's like, and then suddenly they're a pre-med, and then suddenly they're taking like 50,000 classes, and then uh, it's really nice to get that kind of experience before you go in and jump in. I can imagine. What inspired you to go into medicine? Is there anyone in the family? or? Yeah, so not really. My parents were both in the business field, mm. and then actually my sister became a physician assistant. That was coinciding with the time that I was starting to become a pre-med. So uh, no one was in the medical field yet, but it was really just motivating myself to do Wow, so you're the first physician in the family line. Then. Yeah, so far. Hopefully, hopefully not the last, but <laughs> hopefully not the last. I know, I know. It's such a long process going through the whole medical route. It's a lot of time, it's a lot of pressure for sure, a lot of strength that and a lot of money as well. So I guess our plan for tonight is to just tackle like each step you've gone through and hopefully that people can learn from especially pre-med and med students. Let's talk about your undergrad journey first. How was that? What did you major in? And how was the whole journey of four years studying your everything to go into to get into medical school? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I came into undergrad, I thought I was pre-med and I knew I was kind of pre-med, so I kind of knew that from the get-go. You know, the high school studying methods are really different and they don't really work in college. We learned that quickly and I learned that hard way maybe quickly. But I initially came in, I wanted to do like a biology major, which is pretty mm. typical. And then I ultimately decided to actually pursue neuroscience. So oh, wow. that was, I was really fascinated by the brain. Thought I wanted to become a neurosurgeon. I think Gray's Anatomy probably had a little bit to do with that. For sure. Um, <laughs> And then in the, my first and two years, like that's where I was like really trying to get my bearings in terms of how to study and everything. And then my second year, I decided to do the neuroscience major. And all along this, I feel like there's a lot of check boxes that pre-meds feel like mm. they have to do when they're in undergrad. I feel like, you know, there's research, there's volunteering, there's all these other things, you have to get good grades. And there's yeah. so many different things. And I felt like I was just like, just checking off all these boxes. Unfortunately, to some degree, there is some part of that that's required for med school. But I went through undergrad doing all those things. I volunteered in the hospital. I started research when I was a first year and continued it throughout when I was a fourth year. Um, and really liked it a lot. And really found research to be pretty motivating and really, really interesting. And then I took my MCAT and did okay. <laughs> just, just okay, good enough. And then eventually was able to graduate. But uh, we could break down though, those more into, you know, like what are the extracurriculars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. like, that's interesting. Yeah. So what's your research also on neuroscience during your third and fourth year? Yeah. So I started doing infectious disease research, actually. I was oh. studying anthrax and I really thought that was really uh. cool because I really wanted to see the interface between the brain and infectious disease. So mm -hmm. I studied neuroscience, infectious disease, and then I swiveled a little bit over from indifferent disease, which is, um, and I studied a neural parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. It's actually mm -hmm. the reason why pregnant females are not supposed to interact with cat litter because mm -hmm. it could cause this neural parasite that goes on to the yeah. disease. So most of my stuff was all in infectious disease and neuroscience. It's interesting how you didn't end up in infectious disease specialty <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. If the things that we were interested in before slowly evolved, but yeah. <laughs> 
For sure. And neuroscience, still deep, heavy, upper-level sciences. I think a common question amongst pre-med or coming out of high school is, what major should someone be to be on the pre-medical route? I know there's non-conventional ones. I know someone who got into medical school having an art history major, and they just took the prereqs on the side. But for you, what do you think is the best, or I guess the good majors that they can integrate medical school with? Yeah, sure. So I think that it was interesting because when I was a pre-med student and, you know, in college, I thought the same thing. I thought like, you know, I need to do a science major because that shows I'm dedicated to the field. And to some degree, it helps with kind of the upper level bios as you're showing that you're doing some sort of major in that. But there's no true one, two different majors I recommend. Honestly, after going through everything, after seeing my friends in medical school, after, you know, doing all those things, I found that everyone has their own different interests. So the best thing is that for students to find a major that they're passionate about, because that could get you better grades and then better yeah. grades will get you into the medical school. Because if you do a bio major and you're not really passionate about it and you end up with not as good academics, it just does you a disservice in the end. So yeah. really focusing on something that you're passionate about. And the one best thing about medical schools or medical school applicants and pre-meds and also English majors probably is that we're really good at spinning things. So like <laughs> if you find out that you major in English or something like that, you right. can take that critical analysis and say, yeah. I love to you know do critical analysis of my patients and their histories yeah. and really get to know them better through that. And I learned that from my character analyses of these books, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. like, you can yeah. really spend any sort of major to be good for a medical school. Yeah. And I guess also that's why during medical school applications, they try to really look for a holistic applicant, right? Who's not just, who doesn't seem just like a robot who's all sciences and nothing else, right? So yeah. someone actually asked, sent in a question of what was your most favorite class during undergrad and which was the one that you hated the most? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that my most favorite class was actually astrology class, or it was like a physics class, I think. So it was called Unsolved Mysteries of the Universe. And like in it, we talked about like time travel, is it real? How can it be done? Wormholes, like are there aliens? And then we went through like the different Fermi's like paradox. And that was something that my brain wasn't used to whatsoever. Yeah. Because mine is just like engineering, you know, memorize yeah. these biochemistry things. And then this sort this sort of abstractness was was really fun. The class I probably liked the least was honestly like general chemistry. <laughs> um Me too. and it's kind of it's Me it's too. funny because did you did you not like it at all either? <laughs> but yeah, my so, mind is just thinking about mold. Smalls, smalls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh it's like how many of these things could come out yeah. of the act. But I found it really not that interesting to me personally. And then what we find in medical school is that none of these classes that we take are useful in medical school. Yeah. Um, the only one that's moderately useful is like biochem because you take mm -hmm. that in the first, mm -hmm. um, typically mm -hmm. one to a few weeks in medical school. But after yeah. that, you don't take any of these science classes. Yeah which is why they should probably revamp the MCAT, but uh, that's a No, topic. I wish. Right? <laughs> and someone asked, did you like Orgo? <laughs> sure, yeah. So Orgo is surprisingly pretty fun. I think mm -hmm. it's dependent upon the professors and the culture. So at some academic institutions for college, you know, working with classmates is kind of difficult because everyone's really competitive. Everyone doesn't want to work together. They're all like me versus you mentality. Um, and it's really not that great. But at my school, it was pretty fun. Our teachers and professors were very nice. Everyone kind of got along together. And it was like putting the pieces together for the puzzle for working backwards from a biochemical reaction. Unfortunately, it's like similar to many things in science. If you don't remember it and you don't know it, there's no way to logically reason it out. You're kind of stuck staring at that piece of paper. I know. I know. That's it. Yeah, it like flies out the window afterwards. Yeah. Like, especially after one semester and then you try to revisit it. That's why I feel like people spend so much time on content review for the MCAT, right? Because it's been like yeah. years since you've seen those concepts. But do you have any studying tips like for the undergrad level for those who are pre-med? Yeah, sure. So this is really going to be dependent upon the different course. Um, so for physics and for biochem, for example, and for chemistry, it's all going to be about the practice questions. And so that's really what it boils down to. And this is just like repetition of those questions, mm -hmm. even if it's not commonly recommended to just do those questions, because that's most likely what's going to be on your exam. It depends yeah. whether or not the professor actually likes those questions or if he likes taking uh, questions from his PowerPoint. So being familiar with that is really important. Along that note, it's great because when you first come in, you should really make some friends with like upper levels because they've gone through yeah. it. Like what we're doing now, we're talking about someone. And they have resources. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they have resources. And just to get a better
better sense of like, hey, does that professor typically base off this exam yeah. mostly off the PowerPoint or is it off the book? And yeah. so getting that understanding is really important for anybody that's yeah. going. I agree with you though. Like it's very individualized as well how someone studies or how someone grasps a content as well. But obviously you did great. Um, did okay. You went just, through my just <laughs> you did great for sure and like you said earlier as well the whole medical school journey or prior to medical school is just checking off the boxes you have your grades you have your classes and you have every other things that you need for your application like shadowing clinical experience volunteer can you tell us about your experiences like what you did for clinicals or shadowing specifically sure sure so i'll break it up kind of in the timeline that we approach it so like shadowing is typically a little bit later but Volunteering is something that we really recommend commonly for students who want to go apply to med school. We separate it into clinical volunteering versus non-clinical. That's mm -hmm. like the most easiest separation in our minds. And um, so beginning with the clinical volunteering, these are things that you're typically doing in the hospital, like patient transport, stocking shelves, or helping in the ED to help patients, like, you know, if they need a cup of water or if they need some sort of patient contact representative to help can be that interface. So these are really common ones. It's a little bit harder if you don't have a hospital system attached to your you know, undergrad. But yeah. if there is, I would really recommend students to get involved that way. They'll quickly find that some of the experiences are a little bit less meaningful than others, meaning that if you're really extroverted and you really like meeting people, and you're sitting in a stocking room, stocking <laughs> shelves all day, it's not gonna feel meaningful at that time. Yeah. And I encourage you to find something else that's a little bit a different opportunity, but still in the hospital system. But sometimes you could just do that for a year and then quickly switch over to something else. Yeah. The other thing is the non-clinical volunteering. So this is something that we recommend students to do and try to get a leadership position in, because that's something mm -hmm. that we look forward to in students. And the leadership positions could be varied. They could be like vice president, the presidents, or some sort of yeah. head of the chair. But I recommend students to do, this is this is gonna be kind of against the grain, but I recommend they actually do something that they actually like, which is surprising. Like you could want to use your time to do something. That <laughs> and it's nice because it makes you stand out from the rest of the crowd. So like mm -hmm. when we see applicants or like medical school admissions committees would see applicants, they would see someone who is applying to medical school, seems like a robot on paper until they see like, mm -hmm. oh, they really like to walk dogs and they do that like five times. And like, yeah. that's really interesting. And it makes us have a conversation starter. And hopefully it's, it's interesting for the applicant. And then going into the shadowing question. So shadowing is hard during COVID, understandably so. Before back in the day, it still used to be pretty hard because you would have yeah. to blindly email like a bunch of professors be like, hey, can I shadow, can I shadow? Yeah. And that's already like one roadblock. So students who don't have connections find a lot of difficulty with that. Mm -hmm. And I hope that some undergrad institutions are providing resources or connections to mediate mm -hmm. that. But typically, in the most common theme throughout all of it so far was like, you don't need that many shadowing hours. Yeah. Like you only need up to like maybe 30 to 50. Beyond yeah. 50, you're kind of just like, you've seen a lot of it. Anything else is kind of just superfluous and extra that you don't necessarily need and your time could be better spent studying for the MCAT or improving other areas of your application. Mm -hmm. Speaking of shadowing, you are the CEO of ShadowDoc.med. Can you please tell us about that? <laughs> Yeah, sure, sure. So Shadow Doc started off because we recognize that there is just this deficit in mm -hmm. ability for students to reach out to doctors mm -hmm. to find shadowing opportunities. And so we quickly found that we could try to be the medium for that and help students navigate that. So if they were in a town that they didn't have a neurosurgeon in, and that was their dream, that was their passion, we could help find our network of physicians to be able to get them a shadowing experience with them. Since the COVID pandemic has occurred, we've had to navigate a lot of changes. I know. <laughs> no one, I yeah, no one's going to the hospital as much anymore. So we've quickly turned into a virtual e-learning platform. And so in these courses that we do offer, we we offer a variety of different specialties like yeah. dermatology, emergency medicine, quickly orthopedics, and like infectious mm -hmm. disease. And so in these, the students can actually work alongside the physicians to try to diagnose and treat patients that are simulated, of course, given the physician kind of expertise and guidance in their decision-making mm -hmm. process. So it's been a great learning experience for me yeah. and hopefully yeah. a great experience for all of the students who are yeah. partaking so far. When did you start Shadow Doc? Yeah, so I actually started it in my fourth year of med school. So it was a little bit on the later side, but it was great because it's interestingly enough, during the fourth year of your med school, you typically have the most time. <laughs> it's like the most expensive vacation we take. That's what yeah. it's fourth year's med school is called. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, like you said, it's been so hard for many students 
students to gain shadowing opportunities. Like there's a lot of groups on Facebook for like pre-med students mm-hmm. and they're like, we can't find any shadowing. So they're thinking of resorting to e-shadowing. Okay, well, medical schools accept it and stuff like that. So it's been hard, but it's great that you have what you're doing, you know, at least it paves way for students to get that experience. So thank yeah, you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you took a gap year and this is something that a lot of students actually think about so i searched it up and amc says that the mean age of applicants to medical school is 24 years old which sounds really young stat news released an article in february where the title is why medical school should start at 28 do you think that students should take gap years? Should students live their 20s first before entering medical school? (laughs) And if so, would it be too late to start if they're like 30 or whatnot? Sure. I think that's a really good question. And and thanks for looking up those stats. You get to know them. (laughs) So I interestingly thought that the average, I don't know, so the average age of applications may be 24. I don't know what the average age (laughs) of matriculants is. Yeah. Because that's that's an interesting data point too. It used to be commonly cited that the average age to get into medical school was like yeah 27 but i mean the age maybe have been changed now but i think honestly that gap year decisions are really personal choice mm-hmm. and so back in the day uh, like even like four like five to seven years ago i feel like mm-hmm. gap years were um, a little bit less common i think a lot of people frowned upon them because they thought that it represented like a failure like i mm-hmm. need a gap year because i couldn't go straight through because my academics mm-hmm. weren't good enough my MCAT mm-hmm. wasn't good enough and I really think that's such a, a bad perspective, an unfortunate yeah. perspective to have, connotation to have gap years. I think that's why it's commonly yeah. called like a bridge year now, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that personally, for everybody, they should really reflect on what will they do differently with this gap year? Like, will they improve their application? Do they actually want a break from, you know, school itself? For example, yeah. I took a gap year because I wanted to improve my application in some areas. And then I also wanted to just explore the world. Like I'm only yeah. 22, 21 once. And then, so I traveled yeah. <laughs> um, throughout Southeast Asia and I had fun. I was a medical scribe for the beginning. And then once mm-hmm. I got into medical school, I quit my job quickly. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. I was like, well, I've done my dues and I, I left. <laughs> but I What did you do exactly for your gap year? Yeah, so in the beginning, I was an orthopedic scribe, scribe for a company called Scribe America, which is a very common mm-hmm. one. And I did that for about six months while I was applying to med school, doing my interviews. And then quickly, as, after I got in, then I left. I quit my job, got into my med school as a choice. And then I went off to uh, Southeast Asia, and I was studying Mandarin in Taiwan. I was a bartender, really just enjoying the scene, enjoying the life that I had. Almost didn't want to come back from med school, but... I know. Yeah life calls <laughs> i can imagine so i i went to hawaii once and i was like i just want to stay here i don't want to go back and go, go for medical school like why why do, why do i have to go through this right yeah it's, exactly. it's, yeah that's amazing though i mean that really contributes to like being so well-rounded especially being in another country um another continent actually yeah, definitely, it's amazing definitely. I hope you enjoyed the experience, though. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I did. It was really pleasant. <laughs> and was that during the time, like, you took the MCAT already prior to doing that? Yeah, so I took my MCAT in between my third and fourth year of med school during the summer. Mm-hmm. And then I really spent the rest of my fourth year kind of lining up the job for my gap year and then trying mm-hmm. to figure out my application and, like, letters of recommendations. For students who do take bridge years or gap years, it's really good to get the letters before you leave because once you leave, the kind of professors are like, well out of sight out of mind and then, and then when you yeah. read a letter like a few months later they're kind of like who are you again so definitely <laughs> get your ducks in a row before you leave <laughs> yeah. yeah and that was actually a big question a few people sending questions about letters of recommendations they're asking what is the way to attack asking for letters of recommendations to professors and even like those who went back for post bags and has been out of school for like a few years and haven't talk to these professors for years like how do you request a letter letter. so for like students who have gone through or the quote-unquote traditional students it's a little bit easier to reach out to some Mm -hmm. professors but typically a lot of times you want to find a professor that you know and it's hard because you're in this class of like you know Mm -hmm. one out of 200 maybe for gen Mm -hmm. chem are you really going to approach that professor Mm -hmm. but it's good to try to keep that in mind in the beginning of your undergrad career just try to be familiar with a few professors go to a few office hours so you get to know them 
if you're doing research, that research PI is yeah. never going to be included. Mm -hmm. And remember to look up the requirements to apply to med school. I think it used to be two sciences and one non-science. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Typically. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, okay. So it, it's, and then once you find the professor that you want to just have write your letter, just shoot them an email and try to meet with them in person. They tend to ask for like a resume or a CV mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important that students realize that just because they write you a letter doesn't mean it's going to be a good one. They can write you a letter that's a very, very lukewarm letter. And that really yeah. that, <laughs> it doesn't help your application very yeah. much. So whenever you're asking them, you should always be asking, can you write me a strong letter? Because that's mm -hmm. different than can you just ask me a letter. Anyone can get a letter and it'll be three paragraphs yeah. and find it quickly. But asking for a strong one. And going back to the MCAT, I know you took the old MCAT most probably, yeah. right? Before 2015. Mm -hmm. Even though it's different, for sure, most of the material is still the same. And the way you attack it is still the same. So how did you study for the MCAT? Yeah, this is going to be also very individual based. But there is either, I kind of think about it in, do I learn better independently or do I learn better mm -hmm. in a formal structure? So if you learn a formal structure, then probably a course is probably going to be your best mm -hmm. bet. Albeit they cost anywhere from like a thousand dollars up. So yeah. they can be kind of difficult. And even within that, that kind of branches off to, should I do online learning? Should I do in-class mm -hmm. learning? Mm -hmm. And that's really based off of which one you learn mm -hmm. off better. So personally for me, I learned independently. I felt like I could work mm -hmm. a lot faster. And so I self-studied. Mm -hmm. I used resources that may or may not still be in play now as like exam crackers and like Berkeley review. Um, yeah. I used a little bit of, I think, Princeton, just like supplemental, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then took a lot of practice questions. What is becoming much more prevalent now, and I really wish I had it, was like UWorld. So UWorld's been yeah. huge now. Um, they've entered the space, and they provided really good practice questions. Yeah. But the other thing is I've learned that it's really good to be active learning. So active learning and Anki or Anki, however you yeah. pronounce it. It's a flashcard system. How do you say? Yeah, whichever one. Um, whichever that's one. What I, yeah, that's what I use in med school. And it was like, honestly, mm -hmm. a game changer. And so I've seen a lot of students start to use that now. It does take a little bit longer to get used to. And if uh, you want mm -hmm. to like quickly learn it, you it's kind of difficult. But I studied for a total of three months using like flashcards, those mm -hmm. things. That's why I took it during the summer. Mm -hmm. But I've seen students take it even like study within a shorter period of time. So it's really up to the individual and how much time they have to dedicate to MCAT study. Yeah. And I think another scary part of the whole med school application process is interviews. How was your interview day? Were you <laughs> nervous beyond words? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I remember my first interview, I was so scared. I was just like, oh my gosh, like these are all like doctors, yeah. there's medical students, yeah. and maybe the dean of or like the head of admissions. And mm -hmm. that was really, really scary. Mm -hmm. But after a while, and after being on the other side and going through medical school, we're all people. Like we, we just yeah. want to get to know you. But yeah. it doesn't mean that you shouldn't practice, of course. <laughs> so it's good to know a few questions off the top of your head. Like mm -hmm. the most common ones tend to be, you know, why do you want to go into medicine? Why this mm -hmm. school? What makes mm -hmm. you different? Or what diversity can you add to the school? And then sometimes they'll ask you like trick questions, like, or not trick questions, but more difficult questions, like testing your knowledge of or familiarity with like medical ethics. So like they'll give you mm -hmm. an ethical scenario. And they'll mm -hmm. just, there's no right or wrong answer, or at least there tends not to yeah. be. Um, there tends to be a very, very wrong answer, but they just want to see your kind of thought process behind mm -hmm. how do you rationalize yeah. it. And it's hard to practice for interviews other than, yeah. you know, sitting down with somebody who's maybe gone through it or done a few before and then learn from them and then just rehearsing your kind of answers. Mm -hmm. It's important that you don't actually sound really rehearsed, though, because yeah. we can quickly find out if you're really rehearsed. And then, yeah. then, then you get to the more robotic kind of feel, and then it's not yeah. as personal during the discussion itself. Yeah. Someone asked, what was the hardest question that you got during your interviews, any of them, if you can remember? Yeah, um, I think I got a question about food allergies one time. And, and so this is actually funny because it brings back the MMI, so multiple mini-interviews. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those are those are harder questions because they tend to yeah. be um, on the spot. So you read a prompt, mm -hmm. and there's like seven rooms, you enter the door, you just read the prompt, and you have to discuss about it. I remember it's something about being the legalities of food allergy restrictions. I was really out of my realm in terms of the legal world. So I was just like, am I speaking with a lawyer? Like, who am I speaking with here? But uh, <laughs> it ended up being a pretty good discussion still. <laughs> but these are the things that you just kind of put on the fly, and then hopefully you kind of get through yeah. the interview.
Yeah, so you were scouting for like questions that medical schools potentially ask during interviews. And yeah, there's those usual interview questions. And from one pre-med forum, one of the questions were like, how am I going to think of this on the spot? You know, stuff like that. So th those are scary. And I've, I've been hearing about MMIs, how much more difficult they are, given the on the spot nature of questions. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was starting to prepare for my interviews, I remember like some, you know, pre-med forums, they're very, very extra in their advice mm -hmm. and very extra in having... I wanted, to ask to, I wanted to ask you about SDN and <laughs> Reddit. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely get to those. But I remember when I was reading up for my interviews, they were like, oh, you should read like the Wall Street Journal, like all these health articles just to be mm -hmm. familiar with like, you no, know, I think at that time, Obama's new kind of healthcare policies were coming out. That's kind of dating mm -hmm. myself now. But just being kind of familiar, and I was like, oh my gosh, like I haven't read Wall Street Journal for like three months, like I'm going to be screwed. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good to just get a kind of background knowledge on new healthcare reforms and new policies coming aboard, mm -hmm. and then just mm -hmm. getting familiar with a few MMI prompts and just practicing. Mm -hmm. It does take some practice after some time, but I think it's nice because your personality does tend to come through a little bit more. Yeah. And I will say that it's important to be who you are during these interviews, mm -hmm. but also try to be a little bit more extroverted. Yeah. So for those that are a little bit more introverted, we, we like to just talk and just get to know your yeah. thought process. And so, you know, don't sell yourself short and, and try to yeah. be um, enthusiastic. Also mentioned earlier that the whole pre-med journey was kind of also difficult because of the competition, right? And I'm going to link this to Student Doctor Network, SDN, for those who don't know. One of the most toxic places on this earth, and what they say in, in, in those forums, is there some truth to what they say? Or it's just fewer? You can't get in if you don't have a 4.0 GPA or a 98th percentile in the MCAT. Yeah, I, that's... It's literally one of the most terrible places, I think, to ruin your self-esteem. Oh I gosh. think that the, yeah, I think that the saying goes is like, comparison is the biggest thief of joy. Mm -hmm. And it's really important because like, there's one particular subreddit on, or like a Reddit, a little post on uh, SDN. It's just like, what are my chances? And that's what you're describing. Like, mm -hmm. the applicants who come in with the 4.0, the perfect MCAT and everything else. Yeah. They get into any single school but just realizing that a lot of those things on the internet like it's anonymous so a lot of those things are yeah. fake a lot of those things tend to be yeah fake. and having gone through the entire process like you don't need to be the best applicant or be perfect mm -hmm. to get into medical school mm -hmm. plenty of people get in with you know stats that aren't as high as that mm -hmm. i mean these averages that we see in medical school the gpa averages are just averages people yeah. get in underneath those scores yeah. people get in above those yeah. scores so taking that into account i will say that some of the some of the information is okay like mm -hmm. a personal statement recommendations mm -hmm. you know these are yeah. general tips and stuff like that but once you get into the realm of comparing yourself to another that's really when you start to down spiral and i would advise any pre-med student when they realize <laughs> that just to, just to remember that it's going to be okay yeah you yeah know, and just turn away as the end yeah i know yeah. yeah someone even asked dr ben do i need a 4.0 gpa to get into medical school will i get in even if i get a c in one class <laughs> <laughs> and i think that's completely okay i mean like yeah. people get in we care about trends and so like yeah. as doctors we care about data a lot we care about yeah. trends so like if there's a repeated trend of going down trending like you start off mm -hmm. as a's and you're suddenly going mm -hmm. down to c's d's f's then mm -hmm. we start to be concerned but if you're going the opposite way and you're going into A's, B, C, or going yeah. D's, F's, and then, you know, up to A's, then we're, we're yeah. starting to think that it's much better. So just getting one spurious or one bad grade isn't going to end your Yay, great news, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and moving on from the least toxic part of, of the conversation, medical school, how do you decide which medical school you want to go to. I know, of course, they always say, apply to as many as you can. All you need is that one acceptance. But for you personally, how do you decide that these are the schools I wanted to get into? Is there like a criteria you look for in a medical school or that people should look out for? Yeah, so when I first was applying, I felt like I was more in the former kind of category. Like, I just need one school. So I'm mm -hmm. going to cast a really, really wide net. Mm -hmm. I did think of the caveat, like, if I actually got accepted to the school, would I go based off of mm. many factors? So the main factors I looked for in medical school was, first of all, was it pass-fail? Mm. This seemed like a trivial thing to me, and people kept on telling me to go to pass-fail school. But I didn't realize the importance until after or during medical school, mm. because it really takes a big weight off your shoulders. You don't have to deal with the competition. People yeah. are, like, cutthroat. People are actually collaborative. Like, 
my school mm-hmm. would work together to all learn, which sounds right. cliche, but it was really yeah. a big difference compared to yeah. Yeah. The other two major criteria I looked at was whether or not they had research. Um, so mm-hmm. in a field that I liked, for example, infectious disease, not mm-hmm. necessarily that you need to do that type of research when you go to that institution, but mm-hmm. whether or not there's just a strong research foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was important to me. And then the first, and I forgot to mention this, the first most actually important thing was geographic location. So, you know, do I want to live in a rural area, a suburban area, an urban area? And I wanted some place that was close to family. So closer to Virginia was really good for me. That was one of the main things I looked at. And then last but certainly not least, I always really care for patient diversity. So like, what is the patient population there? How early can I get involved in patient care? If you're mm-hmm. if the med school is only getting you involved during your third year, you're kind of really missing out on the first two yeah. years and getting your yeah. feet wet. And yeah. so it's really important to look into these kind of things. Mm-hmm. But everyone's opinions are going to be very different on what they care for in medical school. But right. I tend to think about geographic location to be very heavily weighted for many people. I think also it has to do with for most people like in state tuition as well. Because sure. out of state tuition is actually a lot higher and then you add in the whole price of medical school as a whole yeah i will say that there are some schools that historically only take in state yeah this is very easily found like the msar which is yeah to look at medical school yeah Um, so it's important before you apply before you waste your money and find Mm -hmm. out that they only take in state students (laughs) it's not cheap to apply to one school (laughs) it's definitely not cheap yeah Yeah. (laughs) And medical school. So you've said before that you found medical school much easier than undergrad. Why is that? It sounds <laughs> not so hopeful. It sounds so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, when I was an undergrad, I felt like I was just checking boxes. Mm-hmm. I was doing things that I really didn't like at that time, per se. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. want to go to the stock room every single day and restock mm-hmm. the supplies in the surgically closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But once you get into medical school, like, you don't have to do any of that anymore. You don't have to do anything they don't really like anymore, except for study which I hope that people like. <laughs> but, uh, so like those research opportunities that you're really trying to hard to get in undergrad are suddenly much easier now as a mm-hmm. med student. You know, they know that you're a med student, they know that you're doing well. So they, they kind of throw research projects at you. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, you're a med student, like here, get on this project with us. So those are easier. And then, like I mentioned, I went to a pass-fail school, which was mm-hmm. amazing. So I was able to not focus as much on my academic. Mm-hmm. Not to say that, you know, I didn't do my due diligence yeah. and study, but I wasn't super stressed so helpful. about it. Yeah. yeah, I was super, I was yeah. not stressed about it. One of the biggest things I tell people about medical school and about the pre-med career and the life mm-hmm. is that just because you're pre-med or just because you're in medical school doesn't mean that your life needs to be on pause. Mm-hmm. You don't need to just hold the rest of your life and just say, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this until I'm graduated. I'm not going to do this until mm-hmm. I'm done. Like that mindset and that delayed self gratification, like it's just not great. So whenever I was in med school, I had a friend that came and or a group of friends that came to New York and I was down in Virginia and they're like, hey, can you come next weekend? And I was just like, well, I have an exam the next week. And I was like, you know what? Like, screw this. Like, I'm, screw I'm, it. I'm, I'm a med student. Like, I could do this. So like, I just made my honky cars. I sat on a bus for four hours to New York studying yeah. super hard. And I hung mm-hmm. out with them and that was like honestly one of the best experiences. And I came back and I took my exam and I did okay. So really make sure that you continue your life despite being in school. Amazing. So we had a guest a month ago, Dr. Calvin Sun, and he traveled to 150 countries during his whole medical school and residency period. And it just goes yeah. to show that you can really, what is it, time management, yeah. balancing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's a really big part of it. It's yeah. really hard to learn in the beginning, and you have to figure out what's important to you, how well you can study. And speaking of studying, we see medical students on YouTube all the time, vlogging themselves, studying for hours and hours and hours. I guess given the amount of information you have to know, obviously, as a physician, also for all of the board exams, what is medicine without exams, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Can you take us to what one day would look like when you were a medical student? Was it like really just purely studying, sitting down for hours and hours and end? I'm not going to lie. Some of those videos are pretty accurate. And when they're sitting there for like 12 hours, I'm not going to lie. Some of my days are like that. Uh, it really depends on how your school is really organized and how it's kind of structured. So for me, mm-hmm. I was able to do mostly online kind of remote learning. So I didn't really mm-hmm. actually have to go to class. Um, mm-hmm. Some people were class goers. And I think that's really, uh, yeah. really great for them. I used to watch lectures on 2x speed. 
uh, I got very used to that. So we used to have <laughs> lectures from like, from we used to have lectures from 8 a.m. to 12, and so every single day. So I would watch mm -hmm. those four-hour lectures of only two hours during the day. Mm -hmm. So I would do that every single morning. I'd wake up at mm -hmm. 8, go to the library, and then start studying, and I typically watch those lectures. Mm -hmm. I do do my Anki cards in the morning as well. So I typically was in the library anywhere from like 8 to like 5 p.m., sometimes even 8 p.m. And it, you do study a lot sometimes during those times. Yeah. That was my yeah, yeah, that's like a 12 hour shift. I think that one of the best advice I got was like, treat it just like a nine to five job. Mine was a little bit longer in some days, but like you are just working. Overtime. Yeah, which we're not getting paid for. We're paying them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but treat it like a nine to five job and really yeah. find the work-life balance. Yeah. I found that I really enjoyed working out in the afternoon because it gave me some time mm -hmm. to decompress and get away from mm -hmm. the books and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I would do that like three times a week, for example. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the days was studying from anywhere from like eight to 12 hours sometimes Monday mm -hmm. through Friday. I will say that people had different approaches and some people studied mm -hmm. only for like, you know, five hours a day. That was, that's yeah. like, it's really what you put into it. It's a full-time job basically to be a, to be a med student. Yeah, it's probably full-time job yeah. plus extra sometimes. <laughs> But you, can leave, but you can leave. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah that, was, that was mostly how first two years of med school. Yeah. And then we could talk about clerkships and fourth year yeah. and how that's different. Someone's asking how does Anki, Anki work? Sure. Yeah, so that's a good question. So Anki is a computer program or that you can also get on your phone. Anki is a flashcard system. You are able to make your own flashcards, download other people's flashcards. It's a great sharing community. And it's different in two aspects in that the flashcard nature makes it have active learning. So if you're just reading a paragraph and highlighting it over and over again, it really is just a passive learning system. It really doesn't work that well. But you're doing the active learning is great. And then the second part, the biggest key is probably the space repetition. So this is a way that they're able to tell and that you can indicate to the computer. If you get a card and you say, I really know this information really well, you press that button, they're going to show it to you at a later date. Mm. As opposed to if you get that question wrong, they show yeah. it to you earlier. And so the whole premise is that you're in theory doing this card pretty frequently mm -hmm. in this deck so that the computer mm -hmm. program can basically indicate to yourself rather than you doing it that, hey, you need to re review this information more. And I bet you use Anki too also for like all of your step exams, right? Yeah, for so sure. I did use it for step exams. But the biggest and most important thing, so going back a little bit, the step exams mm -hmm. for students who aren't familiar with it, uh, mm -hmm. there's three steps. Step one is typically the the step that you take, you know, during the first or second year of med school, mm -hmm. sometimes in the third and fourth now, they used to determine what kind of specialty you could go into, mm -hmm. which is soul crushing. If you if you want to become a neurosurgeon, you're, you're really gung-ho, you come into med school, you do really great in med school, then you take this exam you, and you realize that the score isn't competitive enough, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because it's kind of hard to get into that specialty, which is unfortunate because it's so competitive. So there's three steps. Uh, step one used to be the most important. It's now pass-fail. So we'll see mm -hmm. what comes out of that. But back in when it was graded for us, we used to do a lot of on at least I did. Mm -hmm. And I used a lot of UWorld because mm -hmm. it's all about seeing the different types of questions. How can they present this information differently? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, very similar to like the MCAT, we would do a content review in the beginning mm -hmm. or for uh, or however they structured it. So to review every single organ system, GI, cards, endocrine, all of those things. I mean, Nothing much. From like, yeah, every, every, literally from head to head from human, <laughs> everywhere from head to toe from the human body, yeah. you can learn almost everything. You don't have to memorize every single bone, but there's a few mm -hmm. bones that you should definitely know. And then doing those practice questions. And then finally taking the exam, which is anywhere from like a 12 to 14 hour exam. I don't know how long it is nowadays. Can you talk about the contents of the different step exams and which one do you think was the hardest of the three? Sure, yeah. So it gets a little bit easier as, as time goes on between step one and step three, which is good. The first step covers every single organ system, but it covers a lot of minutiae that isn't really mm -hmm. clinically appropriate or clinically mm -hmm. applicable. So mm -hmm. it's really the things that we'd be learning in a textbook. In step one, they cover, as I mentioned, the GI system, cardiology, mm -hmm. neurology, endocrine, mm -hmm. all of the other organ systems. And the questions are hard because they're not any more longer like, oh, he has disease X. What is the treatment for that mm. disease? Um, they're like third level questions now. They're like, he has disease X. What is the side effect of the medication you would treat him with? And then you're like, mm. well, I don't even know what medication I treat him with. Yeah. I'm not going to know the side effect. So, yeah. so the questions get a little bit harder. Uh -huh. The content's still there. Mm -hmm. And the variety of different ways they can ask a question is pretty much covered in the world. 
uh, or any others kind of question bank that are widely mm -hmm. available. Crazy. And it's just, I feel like so nerve wracking to think about how much content you really need to know. It all makes sense. You're going to be taking care of people's lives directly. You know, you're making all the executive decisions over the patient's condition and their plan of care. So it really doesn't make sense the amount of studying a physician needs to do. You mentioned clerkship earlier, but prior to clerkship, which starts in the third year, I think I, yeah. What are the classes that you actually take during the first two years? Yeah, so these are going to depend on whether or not you're doing actually in class lectures or the sort of like that. Mm. They're typically like, you know, a professor stands up at the table or stands up at the front of the classroom giving a lecture. There's been this new movement towards moving towards a reversed or kind of flipped table learning, which mm -hmm. is you learn all the material before class, um, you study the PowerPoint, and then you come in mm -hmm. and just ask the questions. So for us, we did a little bit of combination of that. We had a lot of also like team-based learning, what we call TBLs, group-based learning. So it's kind of you come in, you work with a group to work through an example medical case because it's great because, you know, we're not just always going to be treating patients and listening to lectures. We're going to actually be treating patients in a clinical series yeah. scenario. So having that kind of simulated cases is really nice. And then going alongside that outside of the classroom, we also have like a clinical skills kind of class in which you're learning mm -hmm. actually how to like auscultate the heart, how to do mm -hmm. the physical exam. Because those are things that are not just taught in classroom. They're mm -hmm. actually taught more so in the clinical skills, which is still classroom. Mm -hmm. But then eventually you go on to clerkships. How were clerkships? Your rotations. Was it scary? Like you see things on YouTube or TikTok jokes of actual attendings and surgeons yelling at med students during their rotations. Did those yeah. did those things actually happen? <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes they do. <laughs> uh, whether or not the resident or the attendings or some sort of hospital staff is not having a great day, sometimes the medical mm. student does get some scolding as as we'll say. Which is really mm -hmm. unfortunate because we try to avoid those sort of circumstances yeah. and never should a medical student feel like they're you know being yeah. targeted in any sort of way but i will say that clerkships were they're fun because you're no longer just sitting in a classroom you're actually going to go see mm -hmm. a patient they have that heart condition that you thought was super rare mm -hmm. and now you're taking care of them I will say it's very different, though, because now this is actually a nine to five job or sometimes mm. nine to nine job, depending on how rotation you're on. But you're no longer in charge of your own schedule. If, you know, yeah. your attending says be here at 4 a.m. tomorrow, you got to be there sometimes at 3.30 to prep for your patients yeah. in the morning. So um, it's no longer your schedule. So that's different. But it's really nice yeah. to be able to actually treat patients, see patients. It is hard, though, because not only are you seeing them and working that nine to five job, you're also studying when you come back because you mm. have exams. The exams never end. I just oh. took an exam like a few months ago, so they never end. <laughs> um, and oh my. So, yeah, the exams never end, but you get used to it. Um, and it, it's pretty fun in the end because it's much better than sitting in the classroom all day. And you rotate to every specialty, right? Within the yeah. hospital, or is there also outpatient opportunities as well? Yeah, so that's a great question. So rotations at its core were supposed to be meant to allow students to get a general basis of what it's like mm. to be a doctor in multiple fields. Mm -hmm. And it's also a really good time to, for students to explore what kind of medical field they want to do mm -hmm. based off of exposure to that field. So mm -hmm. even if you weren't really interested in psychiatry, or for example, and then you come mm -hmm. in, you rotate through psych, because it is one of the core requirements, and you end up mm -hmm. loving it. Like, that's great that you're mm -hmm. able to have that experience. But we rotate up through a variety. General surgery is very common, internal mm -hmm. medicine, neurology, mm -hmm. psychiatry, uh, family medicine, uh, mm -hmm. OB-GYN and PEDS. So mm -hmm. those tend to be the core ones. And then you can fill in with whatever other electives you'd like to do, like ophthalmology, okay. anesthesia, dermatology. Mm -hmm. These are kind of a little bit less heard of fields because they're not mm -hmm. as common, but really good mm -hmm. to get that sort of exposure in medical school when you're doing rotation. Yeah. Was there one that you liked the most? Well, I guess given dermatology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually, when I first came into medical school, I thought I wanted to do orthopedics because I was in orthopedics. Oh, right. uh, or versus yeah, yeah. Both, of, yeah. both of which are very um, difficult to get into and difficult lifestyles. But ultimately, yeah. I really liked plastic surgery and dermatology. Plastic surgery is really creative. There's so many different things that you could do. You could take a lot of different approaches to fix like an area and you could help really mm -hmm. help with like reconstructions after like breast mastectomy yeah. it's yeah. really rewarding work so i really like that experience and then obviously dermatology was, was my ultimate choice but i really liked plastic surgery overall
Yeah, Dr. Sigai always tells me that dermatology is an art form, um, <laughs> which, which I agree, which I agree. And then fast forward to choosing your specialty. Can you tell us what's the process of that? Is there like one day that you make, oh, this day I will decide that I want to apply for residency. And can you apply to different specialties at the same time? How does the whole process work? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So the process of deciding what kind of medical specialty you want mm-hmm. to do is really, it takes almost the full three years to be able mm-hmm. to really decide because you have to do your step to make sure that you're competitive for your application mm-hmm. to that specialty and then you really don't start deciding until third year because that's really when you start getting your hands dirty mm-hmm. and you know getting your mm-hmm. feet wet mm-hmm. even if you really wanted to do you know family medicine and then you finally fell in love with a different specialty mm-hmm. during third year that's really when we start to decide is third mm-hmm. year you don't ultimately really need to decide until the beginning of fourth year and some people aren't even decided Mm -hmm. then and they do dual apply as we say but it's important because that's when you start thinking about what kind of letters do i need what kind Mm -hmm. of experiences do i need to make a competitive applicant Mm -hmm. in research Mm -hmm. so typically people decide during their fourth years and then they can dual apply Mm -hmm. we apply through a system called the match which is Mm -hmm. it used to be that you students would apply to a lot of different schools and then the program Mm -hmm. director would just select that applicant what ended up happening in the past was that some students had connections to that school and they made mm. that process really unfair. Um, yeah. So now we go through the program called The Match, which you apply to a variety of different programs. And then this computer algorithm comes along and says, hey, this school you like to here, you like them, you rank them, you know, fourth or they rank you first. And then the computer program would take all the applicants across the entire nation and say, this is the best outcome for everybody to satisfy everybody. And it's a very nerve-wracking process, the match. Sounds like the Hunger Games for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of does, honestly. Our fate is decided by this one computer. Yeah, like a virgin. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Gary, that is nerve-wracking. And your specialty is dermatology, right? We're looking at a featured dermatologist here. (laughs) And for those who don't know, dermatology is one of the most competitive specialties out there, along with neurosurgery and I believe ophthalmology as well and orthopedics as well, which means his step one was really great. Um, (laughs) Are you excited for all of this? I mean, I guess it's also tiring being an intern right now. And if you could also explain what PGY1 means, what's the difference between interns versus residents? Yeah. um, First of all, I am very excited because I go back to the Durham world. But the PGY1 is typically, so that means postgraduate year training number one. So it just indicates how many years you are outside of medical school. Um, For anybody who is going to dermatology, this requires us to do a preliminary year or some sort of transitional year in between that. So I'm doing mine in internal medicine, for example. And the theory, and I think the most important thing about it is that can you be a good doctor to understand the entire body before just specializing on skin? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm currently doing. I'm in ICUs, Mm -hmm. I'm in the ED, I'm on the general medicine Mm -hmm. boards, treating a variety of different pathologies and diseases before going into derm. And then after that, we do three years of dermatology in which we learn how to become a dermatologist dermatologist and you know mm-hmm. study everything about the skin mm-hmm. unfortunately it's one of the more competitive specialties but i think it's definitely worth it and i'm excited to go back mm-hmm. and just be focusing on skin sometimes i don't want yeah, to listen for to the sure. heart i'm very for <laughs> sure i know <laughs> ouch how is it being and entered. So I do work in the hospital as a nurse and you know, July 1st, new residents, new interns coming in. Obviously they're nervous, they're scared, it's their first time. And they're doctors, you know. There is one TikTok, I, I wanna I wanna mention it, where someone's like, Oh, I was with a patient earlier and they were looking for the doctor. And the nurses were like, Oh, good thing the doctor is here. And then the intern was like, Oh, where's the doctor? And it's like, Oh wait, I am the doctor. Oh, crap. So <laughs> is that feeling the same your first few weeks, I guess, being an intern? Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, it's weird because I feel like throughout medical school, we're never called doctor. We're called student mm-hmm. doctor, medical mm-hmm. student. Yeah. You know, calling yourself yeah. doctor is very uh, yeah. difficult to do when you're at that point. But yeah. then suddenly when, you know, hospital staff, nurses, pharmacists are looking at you and saying doctor, you're like, well, there must be a doctor really close by. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I know. Wait, it's me. <laughs> it's like, doctor, what are your orders? It's just like, I, I don't know. <laughs> let, me, let me check the book. You want. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's really overwhelming in the beginning, uh, particularly mm-hmm. since, you know, patients are looking for you for their advice. They're trusting mm-hmm. you for their, almost their lives. Mm-hmm. And then so you start to feel a lot of pressure. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's 
really important to think about where, what have I gone through to gone to this point? Mm -hmm. You know, I've done so much schooling, I've done so much education. Mm -hmm. People have read, written letters, so people have faith in me. I should have more confidence mm -hmm. in myself. And so you get used to that pretty quickly. And as yeah. you know, nurses are really great. And so whenever I have questions, I just go to the nurses. I'm just like, please help. <laughs> and they start, and they, yeah, yeah, but I understand the same for everyone, especially in the health professional field. It's like you go out into the field really not knowing anything because you learn on the job basically yeah. and how are the hours this is a thing that's circulating amongst pre-meds as well is the amount of hours some residents have to work in within one week especially for internal medicine yeah so it, it varies drastically across the different rotations so even within um, when we're on med with residences we do different mm -hmm. rotations in the ICU during like peak COVID times, it was pretty mm -hmm. frequent to be able to work like 60 mm -hmm. to 80 hours. Technically, our cap is 80 hours a week. So we work normally six days a week. So that's anywhere mm -hmm. from 12 to 13 hours per mm -hmm. day times six mm -hmm. days. And you would get up to this uh, 80. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is that the requirement or the cap of 80 hours per week is across like a different time span. So it's not just one week. It's like across mm -hmm. four weeks, so a month. If you worked at mm -hmm. least less than 80 so you can work 100 hours on one week then work a little bit less but it still averages out to be less than eight i would say that would be pretty extreme for me personally i would work as i mentioned 60 to 80 hours in icu mm -hmm. on the general medicine floors you work anywhere from 60 to 70 so it's pretty common to work that many hours a week and then it varies across <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, you get used to it, as I mentioned, but, you know, it depends on the specialty. Neurosurgery, it's very mm -hmm. common for them mm -hmm. to work greater than 80 mm -hmm. hours. Often plastic surgery, probably likely the same. Dermatology, probably a little bit different because we mostly do nine to fives on, on clinic days, but um, the goals. We do, <laughs> yeah, we do, so, we do study a lot, so it's not just yeah. like, mm -hmm. weeks that everyone is joking about. But residency can be tough in terms of the hours. Yeah. For important sure. to have a good like support system whether it be family sure. friends significant others vice versa or etc yeah yeah and i think what a lot of people even within the hospital like even i don't know senior nurses or other i think what they don't understand about residents is that they're taking care of a lot of patients like yeah. technically the whole floor or if it's a small hospital it's the whole hospital it's like you're learning at the same time you know so applause to you you're <laughs> doing you, great you. <laughs> and, and i will say that you know when you're talking about you know being called a doctor it's not mm -hmm. just putting in the order suddenly and yeah. it's not just the the physical toll that mm -hmm. that's but it's really the emotional toll sometimes yeah and during you know the peak COVID times mm -hmm. it's one mm -hmm. of the most difficult times to be nice to you mm -hmm. because patients yeah. are passing yeah. away families yeah. are very very stressed yeah. everyone tends to be very stressed even the physicians mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i mm -hmm. when i was in the icu it wasn't infrequent that i declared a patient dead mm -hmm. that's something that you mm -hmm. know it's a really scary responsibility when you first begin you have to go mm -hmm. you have to be that person that comes into the room listens to the heart, you know, mm -hmm. examines a patient, and turns mm -hmm. to their family and their loved ones and say, I'm sorry that your loved one passed yeah. away. So that responsibility can take large response, take a large toll on, on the person's yeah. mentality, sure. health, uh, and emotional well-being. But personally, for me, I've felt that I've been really supported in my growth as a physician mm -hmm. and really supported by all my friends. That's really I'm what's glad. been helping me get through that. I'm glad. And actually, that's one thing that a lot of people are also asking the questions were, how is that social life balance? Even now in the residency or even during medical school, do you still get time to go out? Like, even as a resident working these crazy hours <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i think so and i i'm personally very extroverted and, and so mm -hmm. like i really drive or take a lot of energy from meeting other people and mm -hmm. working and hanging yeah. out with my friends and so mm -hmm. any incident or any event that i can hang out with my friends mm -hmm. i always try to make use of as much as possible i think it's really fun and honestly it's without my coworkers, i feel like i'd have a much more harder time but whenever mm -hmm. we get off of work early we always try to hang out go to the park san francisco is really big on the park life and being able to enjoy mm -hmm. the nice weather because yeah. it's always 60 degrees here. or go to those delicious korean barbecues that i've been seeing oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. those are really good spots too and so it's yeah. nice to be able to hang out and as i mentioned yeah. before just because you're in medical mm -hmm. school just because you're in residency or pre-med mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you should have your life on pause. Like, please, I encourage people to have their friends hang out with them yeah. and to do whatever else they like. In their life. Yeah. Another big question, of course, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room. All these years is the money 
the tuition, yeah. the loans, I think the average is around two hundred to three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. By the time someone finishes medical school, that's, that doesn't go untouched. That also comes up with interest. Were you ever intimidated by that big amount of money? Or speaking for those who probably like don't have their parents helping them or whatnot, or just loaning it completely. I think it's really unfortunate that our medical education system has mm -hmm. come with such a big price tag. For those who like science and want to help people, and now they're suddenly yeah. paying upwards of mm -hmm. two hundred to three hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Personally, for me, that wasn't as big of a concern. Um, mm -hmm. I knew that I would be able to, you know, pay it off eventually, mm -hmm. regardless of whatever specialty I chose. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. that for some, unfortunately, they have to consider that whenever they decide on a specialty, yeah. which is really unfortunate because you know they're either seeking a higher compensated specialty that they don't like mm -hmm. as much or they're mm -hmm. seeking a program that has a lower requirement of duration of residency mm -hmm. so they can start yeah. paying that. It's really unfortunate um, that that's the case. But I will say that there's, you know, opportunities and scholarships mm -hmm. certainly available. Mm -hmm. There's the military options, which a lot of my colleagues mm -hmm. decided as mm -hmm. well, which they for your entire medical school. And then you don't have any loans whatsoever. And they actually pay mm -hmm. you during medical school. So you're actually making some mm -hmm. money. So those are opportunities that people could look into. There is one that is recently caught a lot of media, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, PSLF. So if you make loan payments and you work at a nonprofit hospital, which almost all academic centers, so all of them that are during your residency, mm -hmm. If you work for that hospital or those type of hospitals for 10 years, then they'll just forgive your loan. And so that two hundred to $300,000 loan could suddenly become zero mm -hmm. after 10 years. But there's some strict requirements and they got some bad press mm -hmm. recently that many people mm -hmm. who applied for that um, didn't even get approval. So I think that could yeah. be looked at, um, but make yeah. sure you're doing it correctly. Well, yeah. that gives a lot of hope to those who are worried about such such a big amount of money. And like you said, it's quite sad that for the next generation of people who will service the healers you know, of the nation have to pay such amount of money to yeah. to reach that position. Given that you've probably spent what eight years of college and <laughs> doctorate school in total, and you know working crazy hours and still going through residency. Do you feel like you missed anything in life? And are there any regrets of pursuing medicine? Yeah, it's really, that's a hard question, honestly. <laughs> if you asked me in the beginning of med school, I probably would say, yes, please send me back to Asia so I can <laughs> enjoy my time there instead. <laughs> but honestly, having gone through it, it's it's a hard journey because, as I said, mm -hmm. comparison is the, is the thief of joy. Um, mm -hmm. And so... I feel like it's easy for us to be comparing ourselves to people who are not in medicine, who are in tech, mm -hmm. you know, business yeah. or they're investment mm -hmm. bankers. And these tend mm -hmm. to be high earning without nearly as much mm -hmm. burnout and as mm -hmm. much stress that healthcare professionals mm -hmm. do face. Yeah. Personally, for me, I have no regrets. I'm very happy with my choice. I and mean, not only that, I'm happy because I found out that I don't only have to do medicine. Mm -hmm. I can do medicine part-time if I want. I could do it mm -hmm. full-time. I could do it as mm -hmm. much as I want. I could mm -hmm. do teledermatology so I don't actually mm -hmm. have to go into the clinic. So it really allows me to give that work-life balance because I have many mm -hmm. other passions outside of medicine, yeah. you know, tech, industry, entrepreneurship, yeah. all of those things. And so ultimately, it's finding what kind of physician you want to be and how mm -hmm. can that practice and what kind of future can you have in that career mm -hmm. that makes you the happiest outside of the hospital. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people are starting to realize that if you're not happy outside of the hospital, mm -hmm. how are you going to be happy inside of the hospital, whether or not you're working in the hospital. But it's important yeah. to think about whenever you're moving forward in a, in a career mm -hmm. in medicine. And I will say this, not to scare anybody, but definitely make sure that you're, you're doing it for the right reasons and, yeah. and do some self-critical analysis yeah. and thinking about what are my other options would i be happy doing something else that's not mm -hmm. medicine or would i be only mm -hmm. wanted to do medicine take some time to think about that yeah because it's a long road it's a long road to go in for the wrong reasons you'll be thinking very hard every single day yeah, every single day <laughs> yeah i can imagine it's like i should have not i should have not <laughs> And this sounds like an interview question, but where do you see yourself in five years or 10 years? Like you were saying, there is also a life outside medicine. You do this part-time, full-time. What do you see yourself doing within those time frames? Yeah, so anywhere from five to 10 years. Luckily, I'll be graduated from residency, so I don't have to deal with that anymore. But um, I would really be excited to do part-time dermatology, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. um, or a full-time with a lot more teledermatology, so I can either work mm -hmm. from home or have a better mm -hmm. work-life balance. Mm -hmm. But I want to spend a lot of my time figuring out how can I impact people outside of the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what I realized when I was in medical school, is that, like, sure, as a doctor, I could see upwards of 60 patients in a day. But I'm mm -hmm. capped at being able to help 60 patients in one day. 
what can I do outside the hospital, whether it's making mm -hmm. a product, making a company, mm -hmm. making a service to help more than that, to help mm -hmm. like thousands of people every single day. So I'm really interested in like consulting um, for healthcare mm -hmm. or to like help nonprofits start like yeah. cancer centers or hospitals yeah. in other countries, which I've been helping. Yeah. And then also to make, do something in entrepreneurship. Um, I think that these mm -hmm. are really fun things that make me excited and kind of make me remember that I'm treating these patients, but they're doing something even bigger sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm excited for you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Is there any one piece of any advice that you would give to, to a student or anyone who's deep down in their hearts that they want to pursue medicine? If there's one thing you want to tell them, what would that be? Yeah, I, I think that the most important thing is to just do it. And, you know, it's going to be hard. It, it, nothing mm -hmm. in this life is easy. If it was, then everyone else would do it. But after taking that t critical time to reflect on whether or not you want this career, I would say just do it. You know, do your research, figure out what can I do now to become a doctor in five to 10 years? Mm -hmm. And, you know, who do I need to know? Who can I reach out to? And don't do it alone. Think about the whole system of network that could support mm -hmm. that you have. Don't reach mm -hmm. out to SDN, probably. It's probably not the year. No, not sitting back You know, who yeah. do they know who's gone through the process? And hear them, like, listen to them, get their mm -hmm. advice. And then just go for it. And then know and have confidence in yourself that you can make it. And persistence yeah. is key. Yeah. Baseline, no SDN, everybody. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's well established. <laughs> yeah, no. In the beginning, I was like, someone told me about SDN. So I started looking into it. So, you know, you have questions in mind. The longer I go into the next page, into the third page, I'm like, wow, there is no chance whatsoever <laughs> there is no hope whatsoever it is yeah. such it's like a chasm in that place it is really difficult honestly it's that place should be a band for most pre -med. i know right <laughs> i know right from pre-med students <laughs> yeah but it has some uses so it is what it yeah. is <laughs> yeah dr chang thank you so much for spending your time with us tonight i know when, when we were talking about this you're like oh you get up at 4 p.m and i was like, oh, you're too i'm like oh my gosh I, i'm giving him one hour to rest in between <laughs> no but, no worries no worries but thank you so, thank you so much for being with us tonight i know you've been <laughs> awake for too long <laughs> but then i'll get some sleep <laughs> yeah go eat first and then get some sleep <laughs> all right thanks so much thank you so much thank you